24, Exodus chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew in front of you or somewhere around you. And Exodus 24 is on page 64 of that Bible. Exodus 24. We're only actually going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 24. Um, But before I read it, I do want to make you aware that uh, these next few months are going to be somewhat of a transition in our our personnel in the office because uh, after 19 years of, of, of working and serving the Lord in our Uh, in our financial um, life. Uh, Janine Burks will be retiring uh, here in about a week and a half. Um, And in a couple of weeks, uh, on the 30th of October, I would would invite you uh, to express your thanks in cards. We'll have a basket out in the foyer and would love for you to just say your thanks to her for, uh, for all of the service and time and energy. And well, for the last 13 years now, she's had to put up with me. So really, quite, uh, quite something. And then, um, actually at the end of December, Debbie Jones, who uh, will have served by that time for 20 years, uh, will be retiring. I keep asking her if she's sure, uh, and she keeps saying yes. And so, uh, we'll talk more about that at our members meeting in a couple of weeks, but I just wanted to make you aware of those things coming up, and uh, we want to take that opportunity to say thank you. Uh, to them. Thank the Lord for them uh, because of their uh, diligence and work. Uh, And both of them through a variety of circumstances in the life of this church if you've been around that long. And so we're thankful that God uh, placed them where he placed them and for their godly endurance and service among us. Exodus 24, I'm going to read the first 11 verses and then uh, we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. This is what the Spirit of God says. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone can come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Let's pray. Father, these are your words. And we come to you. You have inspired them by your Holy Spirit to guard them from error, to teach us truth, to encourage us, to strengthen us, ultimately to point us to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will not find our way to him without your help. We will not truly understand what you've said apart from your help. We see the sentences and we can understand what sentences mean, but we will not sense the impact of the truth that you've spoken apart from your Spirit's help. And so we pray for your help, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit that all of us might hear your voice and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the more... The more you read the Bible and the more you study the Bible, the more you actually come to realize that uh, while the books of the Bible were written over hundreds of years and while dozens of authors uh, were used by God to write these things, that what we have in the Bible is actually not a collection of disconnected religious writings. The Bible actually holds together. It's unified because behind all of those authors is one author. And one of the things that actually holds the Bible together are various concepts that are repeated throughout. And one of those is the idea of covenant. Now, you may have heard that word in weddings that you've been to, heard the pastor talk about a marriage covenant or Maybe uh, when you bought a house, you came into an HOA where you had to sign a covenant, you know, where you're agreeing to uh, trim your hedges a certain way or keep your mailbox a certain color or, or you know, only have uh, certain kinds uh, of Christmas lights or whatever it is. But in the ancient world, a covenant was basically the formal declaration of loyalty, it could be between individuals. So in 1 Samuel, uh, King Saul is out to get David because he's jealous of David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, is friends with David, and they actually make a covenant together. They formalize their friendship in order to protect one another and to take care of one another's family should anything happen. It could also be not just between individuals, but covenants can be between nations. So just last week at the end of chapter 23, we read God actually warns against a certain kind of covenant for his nation. If you look up in verse 32 of chapter 23, God tells Moses, you shall make no covenant with them, the other nations, and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
In other words, don't swear your loyalty to these other nations. Don't swear your loyalty to those gods because they won't help you out at all. They'll actually lead you away from me. They'll lead you into sin. Sometimes these covenants between nations are amongst equals, like they're binding up to fight a common enemy, but sometimes it's between a superior and an inferior nation. So very often what will happen is uh, the king of a military powerhouse will make a covenant with a weaker nation. And in that covenant, there will be several characteristics. I'm just going to mention a few. First, the first thing that the king will do is that he will declare who he is. And the second thing the king will do is he will declare what he has done in order to show goodwill to this weaker nation. And then thirdly, the king will call for loyalty from that weaker nation. They are to serve that king. They are to obey that king. And actually, this is the kind of covenant that God makes with Israel. Because you see, God is actually the great military powerhouse, isn't he? If you remember the story thus far, you remember who actually defeated the armies of Egypt. It wasn't Israel. It was the Lord. The Lord is the one who opened the way through the Red Sea. And the Lord is the one who closed it up on the armies of Israel. The Lord is is the military powerhouse. The Lord is superior. He is the king. He is the Lord. And he comes to his people. And if you just hold your place and just go back a few pages to the beginning of chapter 20 and you, and you look, you will see the elements of this covenant that I just described in what God says. So in chapter 20, verse 2, God first declares who he is. I am the Lord your God. Then he declares what he has done. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? And then from Exodus 20, verse 3, all the way to the end of chapter 23, God calls for loyalty, beginning with, you shall have no other gods beside me. Why? Why why should they be loyal to this God? The answer is in the preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not only am I the God who is the God, the God, the one who is superior to all other gods, but it's not just that. Look at what I've done for you. I've brought you out of slavery. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you to this place because I want to make you my people. I am making you my people. And this is what it means to live as my people. And so what we have in chapters 20 to 23 is a covenant, is a formal declaration of loyalty, of love and of loyalty between God and his people. And in these requirements are the Ten Commandments, which we looked at one at a time, and all of the case laws that we thought about last week that teased out. It's as if, uh, it's as if the, the Ten Commandments are like, you know, the tightly woven cotton candy, all right? 
And then, you know, when you pull that cotton candy, it just stretches, right? And then you can kind of see through and you see all the little things. And that's what those case laws are doing in, in the nation of Egypt. It's like God is taking the love God, love your neighbor of the Ten Commandments, and he's just teasing it out. This is what it means. This is what all is in here. And in fact, it doesn't end there because it just keeps going. But God is making a covenant, and today what we see is actually a a kind of ceremony where the covenant is confirmed. That's what's happening in chapter 24, verses 1 to 11. God confirms his covenant with his people through the blood of sacrifice. That's what's happening here. God confirms his covenant with his people through the blood of sacrifice. And I want us to take note of a few things that are happening here. Because actually, if you were to think about, if somebody were to sit you down, if you're relatively familiar with the Bible, and they were to ask you, well, what, are the, what do you think are some of the more important places in the Bible? Well, you say, well, Genesis 1, that's a pretty important place, right? That's where creation happens. Genesis chapter 3, that's an important place, the fall of man. Genesis 12, Abraham is called. Well, Exodus, you know, this is, this is important. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And then you just may, you just, like a, like a rock on a pond, like a flat rock on a pond, you may just skip your way right through the whole of the Bible, pointing out things. I'm wondering if Exodus 24 would ever come up in your notion of the most important passages in the Bible. I wonder if it would after we look at it. Because the first thing we should take notice of is that God takes the initiative. God takes the the initiative. Before Moses leaves the mountain and returns to the people, God says, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, or is that in the Hebrew is Abihu, but I've been saying Abihu for my whole life, so that's just how I say it now. And Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 19, a barrier was set at the bottom. There was a very clear limit as to how far you and your children and your animals could come. You could not come close to the mountain. In fact, God says, you shall set limits for the people. This is verse 12 of chapter 19. Just listen. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And now Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and these 70 elders are being told, Come up. Can you imagine how they're trembling as they hear that news? We remember that if we go up there, we're dead. And now you're saying, Come on up. Now, Moses can go farther than anybody else because he is the mediator. He is God's chosen mediator, the, the go-between. He, he represents God as he stands before the people, and he represents the people as he stands before God. But there had to be some trembling when God said, come up. Now, we'll get to why they can actually do this in a bit, but, but all I want you to notice for now is that this whole thing is God's idea. God has taken the initiative. Moses isn't thinking, well, what should we do now? Maybe we should go up. That's not what's happening. They don't go on a planning retreat to decide how to lead the people. 
You see, the thing is, is that this God is not on the same level as other gods. It's not like Moses and the the leadership say, well, you know, we've got all these gods in the ancient world. Let's think about which one we want to give our allegiance to. This one? That one? The other one? That's not how it happens at all. But did you know this is how many people talk about religion today? That it's basically like a buffet. I know it's dangerous to talk about food when I'm not nearly done. But it's like, it's like people talk about a buffet. And there are lots of options on the table. And they're all equally good. And really, you take the initiative. You choose whichever, thing, whichever religion, whichever God on the buffet that you would like. And actually, if you kind of like that God, but it's not good enough, you can just change it a bit for yourself. Well, and the reality is we may actually examine some religions in our lives. We may actually weigh some options. But, but what you need to know, friends, is that this God, the God who speaks to us in the Bible, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, does not put himself on a buffet hoping that you will choose him, hoping that you'll come pick him. You see, friends, if at some point in your life you choose this God in your own mind, it's because there is a choice behind the choice. It's actually because of God's prior choice. It's because of God's initiative. It's because God moved toward you. And this reality of God's initiative with mankind is really what Exodus is all about. And it's actually something you see throughout the Bible, don't you? We we don't instinctively move toward God. We instinctively move away from God. And it all started way back in the Garden of Eden. God had given everything that was necessary to know Him and to love Him and to enjoy Him and to have fellowship with Him. But Adam and Eve rejected it, turned away from it, and then they ran and hid. They didn't want to face God. They don't want to be seen by God. They don't want to come up to Him. And the Bible teaches us that when they fell, we fell with them. All humanity did. So that from that moment on, the instinct of the human heart was to stick a hand out to God, turn away from Him, and hide from Him. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So you see, the only reason that any human being would or could come up to God is that God first came down to them. You see, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, they don't go looking for God. God comes looking for them. And in the midst of the punishment that they must suffer, He promises a Savior. And he provides clothing to cover their shame. In Genesis 6, things have gotten so bad on the earth that God is going to flood the world in judgment. But as you know, Noah builds an ark and Noah and his family are saved. But it's not because Noah went looking for God to say, how is it that I can get out of this? No, no, no. God came down. God found Noah, 
and saved him. In Genesis 12, Abraham is not thinking, how can I begin a godly nation for the Lord of all? He's actually worshiping other gods. And God comes and finds him and promises to bless him. And out of him emerges this nation that now God has established. And this is the story. Exodus, this is what's happening, isn't it? God comes down. When God calls Moses, there's not like a long line. And Moses is like the most qualified candidate. Moses is on the backside of the desert hiding from people who want to take his life. And God comes and finds him and uses him to lead his people out of slavery. This is the story over and over and over again. Gideon is hiding from the Midianites. David is lost in a sea of brothers. Jeremiah is saying, I am way too young to do anything. And over and over and over again, God takes the initiative. That's why he comes to, the Lord brings them to this mountain, and he's the one making the covenant. Listen to verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. There's not even mutual language there. It's not that the Lord and you are making with one another. It's that the Lord is the one making the covenant. And friend, that's what, that's what God does with us. You see, if a Christian wonders, why is it that I'm a Christian? It's because God took the initiative. You see, the Bible says that we were dead in our sin. And dead people don't go looking for anything. But God came looking for us. And because of his great love and mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. In 1 Peter God, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is happening there? God takes the initiative. And many of you have felt this experience firsthand because you didn't grow up in the church. You weren't looking for God. You were mocking God. You were avoiding God. You were being cordial with people who talked about God. But then God came and found you right where you were. He said, you were not my people, but now you will be my people. You were in darkness, but now you will be in my light. You were in the grave, and now you will be alive. You were hopeless, but I'm going to give you hope. This is glorious. This is wonderful. This is good news. And it's actually good news for all the people who aren't Christians who are wondering, what do I have to do? What do I have to be? How much do I have to achieve? How much church do I have to put in? How much Bible reading do I have to do? No, 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 friends. God takes the initiative. 
Who knows but that all the people in your life haven't been praying, God, take the initiative with him. Take the initiative with her. Find him. Chase him down. Bring him home. Save him. If it were up to us, friends, to take the initiative to move toward God, to get ourselves to his mountain, not only would we never be able to get there, it's so bad we'd never want to go there. We'd never be saved. But God. God takes the initiative. Secondly, as the passage moves, God provides the atonement. God provides the atonement. So Moses, in verse 3, goes back to the people and he tells them everything that he's heard. He announces to them the Ten Commandments, the, you know, the I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And on and on, all through it, all through all the case laws, he says everything. And then the people accept the terms of the covenant. All, that the words that, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, in that day, once the terms of the covenant are agreed on verbally, it is written down because covenants are enduring things. They're not one-time events. And so Moses writes this covenant down to remind Israel constantly. And in fact, every seven years, they are to read the book of the covenant out loud on that Sabbath year to be reminded of their relationship with God. And then there's this ceremony where everything's formalized and finalized and ratified here, uh, beginning in verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw on the, against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, don't let that slip past you. <laughs> because you may have been reading the Bible long enough that stuff like that doesn't phase you. But blood is being thrown on people. Okay? This is something that sits very strangely in the ears of the people around us. It once sat very strangely in our ears. And so we need to know what's going on. I mean, this is, very, I mean, this is part of the reason why some people don't even like the month of October because of all of the ads and the movies and the whatnot that come on with the gore and the blood and everything. But here we have slaughtering of animals and blood being thrown. What's going on? Well, in that day, when you made a covenant with another person, an animal sacrifice was actually part of the formalizing of the covenant. The animal would be killed and then actually would be cut in two. And the two halves would be set apart 
and the two people making the covenant would walk through it together. And it was a way of saying, if I back out on my part of the covenant, may I be as dead as this animal. Okay? So it's not unusual in that day for animal sacrifice to be part of the binding of two together. And here we have sacrifice, but we have a couple of different kinds. And we don't have anything about halves and walking through, but we have blood being shed, which is the formalizing of the covenant. And there are two kinds of, of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings that are made and peace offerings that are made. Now, in the burnt offering, the blood of the animal would be thrown on the altar, sprinkled on the altar as an indication that uh, uh, sin is forgiven because altars are always Godward. Okay, But then the carcass of that animal that's been sacrificed would actually be burnt up completely until none of it was left as a picture of the complete spiritual devotion of the one bringing the sacrifice. To say, I am totally engulfed in who God is and what God says and I am His. The peace offering... Now, there were actually a, a few different reasons why peace offerings would be made, but they were essentially a celebration of being at peace with God, of being in fellowship with God. So both of these kinds of sacrifices are made. Don't think like one animal, okay? This is a nation of people. This is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So many, many animals. This is not like a one-day event. We can read this in like a minute and a half, this is not how long it took. This was a long ceremony. So these sacrifices are made, and half of the blood is thrown against the altar. Why? Because sinful man cannot approach a holy God as sinful man. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be atoned for. Because God's wrath, God's righteous anger, God's judgment is against sin. And so that blood is meant to appease God in His holiness. And then the other half of the blood sprinkled on the people. Well, what is that? It is the same blood that appeases God is applied to the people. So that the forgiveness of sin accomplished by the sacrifice is applied to the people. And now they have peace with God. Isn't that something? Actually, it's interesting. I hadn't noticed this before this week, uh, that the burnt offering and the peace offering are mentioned together quite often. Thirteen times in the Old Testament, these two offerings are side by side. And it got me to wondering why. Why would they be together like this? And then it struck me. It is only once sin is dealt with that one can actually have peace with God. Your sin, my sin, must be fully dealt with. We must be fully God's, and then we are at peace with Him. There's no, there's no other way. It is only through sacrifice. 
And actually, the more that I came to think about it, the more you realize as you think about that, this is not just some ceremony in Exodus 24. This is not some one-time event that's just stuck in ancient history that we read about and wonder about. What this is is actually a pointer to something that's future, something that's coming in history at that point, something the people gathered there really don't know about, but it is going to unfold. There's actually going to be what the Bible says is a new covenant that comes, a new covenant that is made. Moses won't be the mediator of that covenant. He's not going to be the go-between. There'll be another a better mediator. Jesus will be the mediator. And he's actually the only one who can be the true mediator between God and man because he is truly God and truly man. And this new covenant will be a better covenant. It will be the final covenant. It will be a permanent covenant. And Jesus comes as the mediator of that covenant, but also as the sacrifice of that covenant. He goes to the cross and lays down his life. You see, the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can actually never take away sin. An animal could never be a substitute for a human being. But Jesus comes, and he is the sinless Son of God. And sacrifices had to be spotless. And that's what Jesus is. And he comes and he lays down his life on the cross. But before he does, he's with his disciples and he holds up a cup of wine. And do you know what he says? He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, that is an intentional echo of Exodus chapter 24 verse 8 where Moses says behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you Jesus is saying I am the better sacrifice I am the better mediator this is the better covenant because when you come into this covenant, God forgives your sin and remembers it no more. He never brings it up again. It's gone. There's not going to be repeated sacrifices. You don't have to do this. We don't need to wait on another Savior to come, and then another Savior, and then another Savior. Jesus dies once for all. The only thing to do it's also better because we can't do anything about it. The only thing we can do is actually receive the blessings of the covenant by faith. Receive forgiveness. Receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Receive eternal life. To turn from sin and give oneself wholeheartedly to Jesus. In a sense, it's like saying what the people say once Moses reads the law of the covenant to them. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. It's not a way of saying, God, I'm going to earn my way to you. It's a way of saying, God, you are the Lord. You are my Lord. You are my King. You are my Savior. I am yours. My allegiance is completely yours. And everything you say will govern my life from here on out. I will do what you say to do.
Friends, that's what faith says. Faith looks to God that way. And when we come, when they, when they declared their faith, look what happens. Verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. When we come by faith to the Lord Jesus, that is when the benefits of the blood that he shed come to us. It is not apart from faith, friends. It is by God's initiative, his grace through our faith. So that Romans 3 says, like we read at the beginning of the service, Jesus' blood makes propitiation, satisfies the wrath of God. Romans 5 says that we are justified by his blood. Ephesians 1 says we are redeemed and forgiven by his blood. 1 John 1 says his blood cleanses us from sin. Hebrews 9 says that his blood purifies our conscience. Hebrews 10, we can enter the presence of God because of his blood. Revelation 1, we have been set free from sin by his blood. Colossians 1, he has made peace by the blood of his cross. The only way to forgiveness, the only way to have our souls made clean, to have cleansed consciences, to have peace with God, to enter God's presence, to be set free from sin and its cruel penalty is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way. It must be the death of another. It must be the work of another because I can never do it. It's only through faith in his blood. Friends, what is, it, what is it that you have thought it means to become a Christian? Have you ever thought it means trusting in the death of another so that I might live? Most people think becoming a Christian means to put on new morality just to put on a new way of life, to turn over a new leaf and add Jesus to it and come sing songs in a building and give money and those kind of things. No, 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 no. It is to renounce everything that was before, every hope you had ever had, everything you had put your trust in, any effort that you might make, and it is to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, it is your blood that has made it possible for me to be right with God. That's faith. And because your blood has been shed, I am yours. Acts 20 says the church is those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. I no longer belong to myself, God. I belong to you. You are the Lord. You say it and I will do it. Friends, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who is trusting in the blood of Jesus and no longer lives for themselves but for the one who died for them. That's what a Christian is. Are you actually a Christian? Are you actually trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive your sin? Do you think there's something else that you must do? Yes, 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 that got me started, but there's more, right? No, 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 there's not. He's done it all. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow.
God provides the atonement. Don't go around in life thinking you can atone for your sins. People use that kind of language all the time. It's ridiculous. We can't do anything. Oh, I may do something that makes you like me more, but there's nothing I can do to make God like me more. There's nothing I can do to make God forgive me. There's nothing I can do. He has done it all. If you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, friend, do it today. Turn to Him today. Don't go another step away from Him. Don't stick your hand out to Him anymore. Open your arms to Him. Run to Him. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will make you right with Himself. He will give you life. He will give you peace. He will give you hope. He will give you joy. Why would you ever turn your back on that? Don't do it. Don't do it. God has provided the atonement. And then the third thing. God accepts his people. Moses and Aaron, verse 9, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for cleanness, clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So the men who are called for at the beginning of the chapter are now to come. Now remember, they were forbidden from coming, threatened death if they came up, but now they can go. Why? Because of what we just said, because God provided the atonement. God made a way for them to come, a peace has been established. The covenant is in place. And so now they go. And they see God. God reveals himself, makes himself visible in some way. Now, take comfort in these words. Uh, in verse 10, there, were, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement. That as it were means I don't really know how to explain what it is that I saw. But as it were... This. So they have what is often labeled as a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. But these words at the beginning of verse 10 are shocking. And they saw the God of Israel. (laughs) Don't just let that go either. Because that phrase has had Jewish rabbis twisted up in knots for thousands of years. Trying to make that mean something else other than that. Because, for good reason, later in Exodus 33, God is going to say to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me me and live. But we can't get around this language. We, we have, all we have is as it were. So we don't have like a portrait painted here. We just know that what they see is some kind of theophany, some kind of manifestation of God in some way. They have a vision, and, they, and as it were, there was this beautiful, clear, blue stone pavement beneath God's feet. The only thing you get is feet and pavement. I thought about that. Why would they only talk about feet and pavement? And here's what I, my best answer is, is they are so overcome by being in God's presence that they cannot lift their head anymore. That's it. 
This is their woe is me moment like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. They can't lift their heads. But friends, what's even more amazing is that they see God and they live. They live. Look at the beginning of verse 11. He did not lift his hand against the chief men of Israel. These guys should be laid out, pulseless, dead, on the ground, and new elder elections are being held back at camp. But here they are, basking in the glorious presence of God, not dead, but eating and drinking. Now, the eating and drinking is also tied to the covenant because once you get all of that done, once it's agreed on verbally and it's written down and you have the sacrificial ceremony, then you sit down for a meal because the shared meal is a picture of acceptance, of friendship, of peace. This is why the Pharisees are so upset when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners because this is a picture of his acceptance, his friendship with these folk. But think about this. This is a God, as you remember, cannot be, uh, he cannot be approached casually. This God that if you approach him on your own, in your own way, you will die. This God has made room at his table for his people. That is unbelievable. That is amazing. That is awe-inspiring. He has rescued them. He has made a covenant. He's confirmed the covenant. He grants the blessings of the covenant, and then he brings them to his table. And friend, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what God has done for you in the new covenant. Because his blood has been applied to our lives through faith, we are welcomed at God's table every month. We come and we eat the bread and we drink the cup of the Lord's Supper. Why? First, to look backwards, to remember the death of Jesus for us, sitting at that table, taking that bread and that cup is a reminder that atonement has been made. And God accepts us. But also, remember what Paul says? You will eat this bread and drink this cup until the Lord comes. You see, we eat and drink the Lord's Supper with an eye to the future, to the great day when Jesus brings us home, when he leads us to the table, and he says, this space is for you. <laughs> That's amazing. Isaiah sees this day. In Isaiah 25, he says, on, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Revelation 19, at the very end, what's happening? A banquet. And these words are uttered, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a place at the table because of the atonement that's made. You see, those who are there won't be there because they took the initiative and found God. 
but because God took the initiative and found them. They won't be there because they made promises to do better, to be better, to atone for their sins. They'll be there because God made atonement in Jesus. They won't be there necessarily because they accepted God so much as God accepted them in Christ, through faith in Christ. You see, friends, Exodus 24, 1 to 11 is like the Cliff's Notes version of the whole story of redemption. All right there. God takes the initiative. God makes the atonement. And on the basis of that atonement, God accepts his people. And because he has done all that, God gets the glory. And all we say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Oh God, how much we love the hope that is in these verses. We are thankful. Those of us who know you are thankful that you took the initiative when we would never, that you made atonement when we could never, and that you accept us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that there would not be a single person here who would turn their back on a God who does this, Give grace. Take the initiative today, Lord. Awaken hearts that they might see their Savior Jesus and run to him in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and we're going to um, sing briefly as we...